Welcome to the Wood Podcast, where we explore solutions to some of the world's most critical challenges in energy and the built environment. I'm your host, Lauren Gallagher. Thank you for joining the second episode in our Future Workplace series. We've come a long way with safe practices and technology used to detect and fight the virus, but employers continue to face challenges managing the risk. There's limited evidence of what works and no universal standard, yet our highest priority remains keeping people safe. How are the latest technologies being used? How is ventilation key to a safe indoor space? How can we build resilience into today's backdrop? I'm joined today by two of our industrial hygiene experts based in Seattle, Washington. Mike Smith is a pioneer in this field and leads our COVID-19 prevention, safety, and return to work programs. And also with us today is Michelle David, who is spearheading initiatives to reimagine building design in today's world. So since the start of the pandemic, employers have been keeping to the pulse of changing guidance, technology, and best practices to plan and respond quickly and cost-effectively to reduce the spread of COVID-19. How is technology evolving, and how does the role of the industrial hygienist fit into this? Mike, did you want to start? Yeah, lots lots changed since uh, March. We had technology in place already to help deal with pandemics, things like ultraviolet light and uh, disinfectants that contained the right compounds to kill the virus, to um, instruments that can detect uh, particles in the air and sur sur uh, surrogates uh, that might represent um, the disease. And now months later uh, into this, we have a lot more technologies that have become available, uh, particularly advances with laboratories and using what's called uh, uh, qPCR or the identification of the RNA strand in, uh, in the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, that technology is now available to measure the virus on surfaces. It's available to measure the virus in air. Um, and certainly um, it's available to identify the virus in people. We also get to evaluate whether the technology that's being proposed is actually going to harm people. So things like UV is great if it's used properly in the proper locations, but if you're exposing people to UV, that's obviously a potential hazard. Um, likewise, the chemicals that are used for treating surfaces, uh, some of which are being designed to have long-term residual uh, effects once they're applied, um, can also be really harmful, especially if they're not used properly. You know, much of the concern that our clients have had has haven't really been calling us up and saying, we need you to come out and, and measure things. It's really more from a sort of global 30,000 foot level of how do we possibly keep our employees safe and what do we need to do um, to make sure that that happens. And a lot of those solutions don't really involve testing or technology. It really involves finding out what best practices are out there and using them. Yeah, I mean, getting the technology to the people that need it is always hard and getting 
policies written to allow that sort of thing to even happen in the first place is also hard. So you're struggling with supply and demand and, you know, validating whatever method you decide to use. It's complicated. Diving deeper into this complicated task, how do employers decide what practices and technologies to use? We, we certainly are getting a lot of questions from clients about those issues. And while we're not doing a lot of actual testing, we are giving a lot of recommendations and advice about that testing. Uh, any kind of testing should have a good hypothesis behind it. Uh, now we have all these technologies, they're being developed, but we don't have good standards. So, you know, you find one viral particle in the air floating around and you capture it and you get it analyzed. And yes, by PCR, you identify that it indeed is SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But do we know whether or not that one viral particle is gonna cause disease? And the answer is no. We really don't know what the threshold is for the amount of viral particles that causes disease. Yes, the technology is there, it's being developed on a daily basis, but we're not really at the point where that particular testing method really gets us the kind of results where we can definitively say, yeah, it's there and yes, it's going to cause you harm. And that kind of goes back to the industrial hygiene concept of finding a source, a pathway, and determining whether or not there's an exposure. You can't have an exposure if there's no source and no pathway. But we don't know what, what, how many viral particles it requires to get sick from this. And we don't know what the most effective exposure routes are, other than respiratory seems to be a big part of that. So it goes back to those standards, which we don't have any of, right? If you don't have a standard, then why do the test in the first place? Unless you simply want to answer the question, is there, are there viral particles in the air, period? Although we're challenged in understanding all of the risks associated with transmission of the virus, the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control have acknowledged that indoor infectious respiratory droplets are a much greater threat. What can employers do to keep people safe? So first and foremost, the employer's got to have a good program and not lose sight of um, prevention, keeping that any kind of virus or any kind of disease uh, mechanism from even getting into the workplace and exposing other people. Having said that, you're not going to always be able to know when people are sick in the future. So the next thing is, how do we keep uh, viruses or other types of airborne contaminants from affecting other people? And the ventilation is by far the best way to do that. Uh, there's a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. It works very well with other types of contaminants like dust and gases and chemicals and even lead. With good ventilation, particularly what we call local exhaust ventilation, which is putting the ventilation right at the source, putting it at as close as possible to where that, that contaminant is being generated from 
and you have your best chance if you put your ventilation there to keep it from going and affecting somebody else. Keep in mind, a cloth mask or a mask with no breather valve is a local filtration device. So wearing a filter on your face properly over both your mouth and nose, for example, is the best form of exposure control we could apply in a work environment. If COVID aerosols get out into the work environment, it's harder to collect them and keep them from causing exposures. Yeah, I want to paint a visual picture for you. So imagine somebody sneezing into a space that has literally no ventilation. What do you think is going to happen to that cloud? The cloud is going to remain the cloud. If you are sneezing, coughing, or playing a musical instrument in a room that has really good ventilation, what's going to happen to the cloud? It's going to dissipate. And the better your ventilation system, the more ventilation, the more fresh air you put into that space, you break up the cloud. So that's a good way of thinking about, you know, why, for example, the World Health Organization and CDC went from calling this a droplet aerosol hazard that people should only worry about within six feet to an airborne transmission hazard where the virus has the capability of going more than six feet away. It has a lot to do with maybe almost entirely due to how good the ventilation system is. Air quality parameters can affect exposure to COVID as well. Um, we know that heated air tends to be drier and we know that the lower the indoor relative humidity is, the faster exhaled par um, aerosols can shrink in size due to evaporation. So they go from being sort of a spittle drop to a very small um, aerosol. And those small aerosols can stay airborne a little easier, and they are more likely to result in a respiratory exposure. Controlling relative humidity indoors may help reduce exposures, and it's a pretty easy parameter to evaluate using conventional tools. This is something we evaluate um, as a standard indoor air quality parameter. I've read that many HVAC systems use a mix of 20% of outside air and 80% recirculated air for energy efficiency. When it comes to introducing airflow indoors, what do we need to be mindful of? So fresh air dilution is also prescribed as a tool for controlling COVID exposures, but there's a cost to that. Um, when you start adding more fresh air, it increases the need for heating or cooling and even filtration, right? Because you've got stuff coming in from outside that needs to be filtered out. Um, the recommendation for fresh air intake per ASHRAE, which is the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, um, has been around 16 to 20% for years. Um, but if we add filters to a system to control aerosols, for example, it's important to know that the filters add resistance to the system. So you can't just start putting you know high filtration into a, an existing building it just it might not work um, some of the recent aerosol testing tools that are out there are showing that aerosols might not even make it into the building hvac system um, in that they get exhaled and they stay in the workspace for example so it might be more important to continue with mask use and maybe even consider local HEPA filtration devices in workstations to control those aerosols. 
instead of trying to make the building's HVAC system filter those out for us. Cost is obviously important to sustaining a business. Well, by far, you know, orders of magnitude, uh, higher costs are associated with people than they are with with um, your building and, and your, your maintaining your building systems. So what I'm saying is keeping a person healthy, keeping a, a worker healthy is by far more cost efficient. How could someone learn more about the ventilation system they currently have and whether any upgrades have been made? Well, one thing that's important is there's usually a function called bu a building operator. That building operator is going to be responsible for maintaining the mechanical sort of electrical systems in that building. And that includes, includes the ventilation system. And so if you want to know what types of filters are being used currently or uh, how much air circulation there is, how many what we call cubic feet per minute of airflow going through a building, um, the building operator should know that. And quite often industrial hygienists work hand in hand with building operators and make suggestions about how to make improvements to those systems, like what we've been talking about in the podcast so far. So one thing you can do is ask your building manager or operator what kind of filter ratings they have on their HVAC systems. Um, it's also important to ask if they're doing regular maintenance and whether or not they're doing any kind of air quality testing. We need to look at what building areas share recycled air. Um, some buildings partition office spaces um, or might have shared air from floor to floor. It just depends on the facility. One of the things that you might hear a lot about is HEPA filters, which are high, high efficiency particulate air filters, and they are one of the best filters that we can buy, um, but they're not perfect and they don't collect every tiny COVID aerosol. Um, there's other filters we usually see getting used in buildings, and those are typically called MERV filters or minimum efficiency reporting value filters. Um, and many building systems aren't built to handle additional filtration. So you might see a MERV 8 filter in a building Recent studies by Safe Traces um, suggest that there's not much of a difference between a MERV 8 and a MERV 13 filter. They also found that MERV 16 and HEPA filters perform pretty similarly. When it comes to ventilation, any other important considerations? Directional airflow is important for controlling exposures too. So a typical office space especially older buildings, um, they tend to use lateral air movement. So they blow the air across the ceiling and then it comes down the walls and then it you know, runs across the floor and it gets sucked back up into the ceiling and into the system and filtered. Um, but being downwind of a sick person is clearly going to be an exposure hazard in a, you know, in a pandemic. So using barriers around workers is, is one of the things that's been proposed for protecting workers from COVID exposures, but it can really affect how well ventilation systems operate in a building. Um, as soon as you start blocking that airflow that's normally designed into the building, um, it can affect air quality and, and of course costs and worker exposures.
industrial hygienists as well as mechanical engineers. Some are well um, suited to look at a building or a part of a building and give some solid recommendations about whether or not it's adequate the way it is or whether or not you can make cost-effective changes to that building to make it safer. So it doesn't have to be daunting. I wouldn't think of it that way. I would think of it more in the light of, as an employer of, how am I going to maintain my business and be successful knowing that my people are the most important factor uh, in all of this? Thank you both for joining us today. I've learned a lot about the importance of effective ventilation indoors. Based on our conversation, how can we design a more resilient workplace? I would suggest employers and clients think about how to optimize their work, uh, workforce to be as flexible as possible. Let me give you an example. Uh, conference rooms are typically designed these days to have one long table inside of a room uh, where people gather together shoulder to shoulder at the table and have meetings. A flexible idea would be design the room in such a way where you have smaller tables that interconnect into one larger table. So you have the option of having a conference with people close together or you can separate those tables into different parts of the rooms and maintain physical distance more than six feet while still having people in the room and having your telecom devices um, facilitate the meeting and optimize the ventilation system in that conference room so that you have enough filtered ventilation to minimize the impact from airborne contaminants. I'd like to build on Mike's flexible conference room idea and say that, you know, here's an idea. What if we all had desks and conference tables that had their own built-in filtration and directional airflow systems? Um, maybe we could stop trying to control a whole room's worth of air and focus the control on the occupants instead because they're the source of these aerosols. Also, we need to think about compartmentalizing our offices and our work teams so that we can be more resilient. That way, if somebody on a team gets sick in one part of an office, we can quarantine just that team and maybe clean that part of the office and keep everybody else working. The challenge is managing the people in the space and not the space around the people. And that brings us to the close of this episode on the Future Workplace, where we explored how we can establish safe indoor spaces amidst the unknowns of the virus. If you'd like to connect with today's guests or explore related insights, please visit us at woodplc.com podcast, where you can also subscribe and receive updates to the Wood podcast. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating, making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Take care and be well.